On today's episode, we talk to artist JT Lucchese about widespread panic. This is The Operative. I'm your host, Chris Williams. So, thank you for joining me. I'm going to mispronounce your name again because of our <laughs> we've known each other for <laughs> ten years and Lucchese. Okay. Uh, so, uh, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're from, that sort of deal. Born and raised in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm a print artist, 46 years old. Um, went down to Atlanta for a while for uh, art school. Ended up staying there, meeting my wife having a child, and then coming back up here in about 2006 to where I'm still print artisting. <laughs> that's what we call it. <laughs> and, move, and moving forward, you know, that's about it. <laughs> so, uh, so you said your favorite band is Widespread Panic. They, they've, been, they've been in my life probably longer than, yeah, most of the bands I listen to now, yeah. Calling them a favorite's not really a... I, I, there are a lot of other bands that I listen to more than them at this point, but they are a band that have more meaning to me as far as their songs. They've been, you know, certain albums, certain songs ring, bring back memories of, you know, different parts of my life, just like a lot of music does. But, yeah, if I were to actually name a favorite, it would probably be Frank Zappa, but that'll be for another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Um, so, what was your first experience with uh, with widespread? Or where are widespread from? They are from Athens, they Georgia. Are, okay. They are from Athens, Georgia. Now, before I moved to Georgia um, in 1990, uh, going to high school up here, I had buddies that were going down to see the Grateful Dead play in Atlanta and uh, various other places, and. A buddy of mine at that time, Matt Parker, went down to see the Grateful Dead in Atlanta, and he came back with cassette tapes uh, of uh, live performances of Widespread Panic from like 1988, 89, and then a very, very bad copy of their first album. And he was pretty blown away, saying that he actually was turned on more to this band than the Grateful Dead, who we went down there originally to see. And... Uh, he played the tapes for me. I, I, I actually, actually have to agree with him. I was blown away myself. It was a sound I'd never heard, and uh, it was a sound that sounded good to my ears. So that I think that was the first point. I went, to, took my allowance, and I hopped on the bus, and I went to the old school kids' records. Of course, they didn't carry the first album at that time because it was. They were not a you know on a major label of any extreme. In fact, I think it was a Landslide Records was the the record label they were on, and so uh, they had to order it. They had to order it from Athens, and it came a week and a half later. And I had to take the bus back up to school kids to go pick it back up, pay my if I can remember right, I think it was like eight ninety nine. I don't know why that number sticks out, but I think it was eight ninety nine to pay for it. And, uh, yeah, that was pretty much the uh, introduction for uh, my love of that band. But I did not actually get to see them 
until we moved down to Atlanta in uh, the middle of 1990. Mm. And that was the first time I ever saw them, which was, yeah, pretty life-changing as far as music goes. Were, uh, were they, or, or I mean, I know they're, they're still around, were, are they associated with a major label at any point? I, 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 I admittedly know a little about They are not their albums, their album okay. sales. Right. Uh, I hate to keep comparing them to uh, The Grateful Dead, but The Grateful Dead started, uh, you know, they paved the way for a lot of, you know, instrumental, I hate to use the term jam band. Jam band was a term coined uh, for to describe these bands who who do uh, you know instrumentals, uh, improvisational instrumentals in between, or, or you know extended jams or whatnot. But just the the term jam band just gives me the creeps. I've, there's no, I mean, bands that are considered jam bands lumped together as jam bands that are not in any way similar. Fish and Wise for Panic are considered jam bands, but they are two different t- styles of music. Um, anyway, uh, so the, the, uh, yeah, that go back to Grateful Dead. We're never known for, as a, as an album selling band, mm-hmm. but they have uh, they have you know an army, an army that always traveled around with them, seeing them show after show after show, multiple shows for whole tours even, because the show that they played in Chicago is not going to be the same show that they played in Kentucky or the show that they're going to play in Idaho or wherever they play. You know, every show is literally a different... This, even the individual songs can be played slightly different. You know, mm. the, the, the solos are different. So it's kind of like a, a, a different experience. If you're really a cultist of that band that you're into, you know, see, seeing e- each individual show is just like a... Yeah, it's like a snowflake. It's a whole new experience, you know. The, you, yesterday's show in Chicago was that person's favorite, but could not be liked by that guy who saw a better show, you know, in New York. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. It's, it's pretty much individual. It's an individual experience. That's, I think, the closest touchstone that I would have to that, and that it's a it's a reach because I'm not really into them anymore, but, like, Pearl Jam, I know Pearl Jam is known now. It seems like they're known more now for their live shows, and, like, they went through and released all their... Uh, a bunch of their live shows on CD at some yes. point. Yes. Yes. They. I mean, the. I mean, you could look at the whole scope of the landscape of the music industry, and it's just it's so upturned. It had, since the you know the proliferation of the internet, it, there hasn't been a really a normal you know business model for for music. So. Mm-hmm bands have had to leave the label mentality and kind of forge on their own to make money you mm-hmm. know so how are these bands supposed to get on the radio right. when there's no real platform or radio for them to get on you know it wasn't until maybe like xm you know i think there's a couple stations that cater to to the uh people that like that style of music but a lot of you know, we're still living in kind of a cowboy age where people are trying to find new and out yeah new outlets to or a way for bands to survive well, and it seems like live is the mainstay well that that's so that's interesting to me because it seems like a, a band like widespread would do 
fairly well and i guess it, it's you know if they're not known for their albums they're known more for the live shows like like surviving in a digital age like they would do better because of the tape trading and stuff like that through the internet um it seems like that would help them live on uh whereas you know there's like i don't know, I don't know how many bands are on Bandcamp now and aren't known for being on major labels um but it, it seems like there are so many more bands and so much more access to bands now that um i guess like having a band like widespread out there that is changing things up every time they play a live show and then having that access or the fans having that access like that that would be a benefit to them where it's it's not going and trying to discover new music it's like going and discovering a new show yeah. that's going to be something that you you know you like <clears throat> going into it but it's something just a little different you so, actually touched on something a second there which we haven't mentioned yet was the fact that the tape trading they are a band that allows uh, fans to record you know we can uh there's a section either in front of the soundboard or behind depending on the venue and you don't have to have any certain kind of ticket or anything some bands that allow you to record have a certain taper section I guess it's called uh, it was one point it's called being a taper because you brought in a tape recorder mm -hmm. now it's all digital recorders so I just call it the guy who presses the big red button so. <laughs> but yeah I mean tape, tape trading is I mean, a lot of bands look at tape trading as bootlegging, like it was taking away money from, uh, you know, from the bottom line. But if it's a band that doesn't rely on making albums and go solely by their reputation as a live band, then the act of trading live recordings is, you know, I mean, it's basically advertising. That's how, that's how new fans, I mean, they're not... The, the fans they build today probably did not first listen to an album. They probably heard live recordings or even had friends that drug them to a live concert. So, you know, it really, once again, it depends on the individual. It's the individual experience, but it is an experience at that. I know there are a lot of people that would say that widespread panic is just hippie dribble. And once again, I mean, it's it's up to the individual. Everybody likes different kind of music. Mm -hmm. And Fish, Widespread Panic, there's newer bands like Humphrey McGee's, etc. But they're all, you know, they're once again lumped in as a jam band, but they're all different styles of music. So to call them, put them under one umbrella of music is kind of an odd thing. But all the, the thing that's similar to all these bands is that they rely on the live music experience more than selling albums and selling downloads because it's not really going to make them that much money anyway right. let's be real you know it's hard for a band to be solely out there just buy album sales alone and survive I mean you have to go town to town still I mean that's something that's never going to change mm -hmm. doesn't matter where, te where technology takes us doesn't matter how the landscape of the music industry changes there will always be a place for live music and that's where a band like Watchford Panic survives the most, and to get and to to, to they they put a hundred percent into that experience because that's where they know their bread and butter is. Mm. The fans come back because they don't play the same show every night of the tour. You know, it'd be different if it was like that. They wouldn't have it. Mm. They would they would sell their tickets, but they wouldn't have the drive to see them. 
How, like, roughly how long are their shows? I mean, are they, I assume that they're probably... They like, could average about, about three hours. You know, they really? do okay. about an hour and 15 minutes first set, and then they have intermission, and, which is usually way too long. And then, uh, <laughs> and then a second set. It depends, once again, you know, the Halloween shows that are longer. The New Year's shows, they do three sets, so... And the fact that they don't play as many shows now as they used to. I mean, they're, they've been playing for over 30 years. They're yeah. not spring chickens. They don't do 200 shows a year like they used to in the 90s. But the, one, the shows that they do play now, they put their all into. And even more, 110%, because they want to, you know, they want to keep the fans happy, so to speak. And even try to pull in some new ones. Well, so... To one way that you've been associated with the band for a long time, if you feel like talking about this, is that you've been one of the. It, it doesn't seem like they've had a lot of continued poster artists over the years, and you're you're one of the. It seems like you've been you've you've done a number of posters for them over the years. I've been around. Well, as far as a fan, I first started seeing them in '90. They did not really, I don't think, there's debate on, well, I guess, quote, making it, you know, as far as taking that, the next level from playing bars and, you know, small little theaters. When they started playing uh, amphitheaters and arenas and stuff, that was, you know, that was a, that's what I call the next step, mm. you know, for, for a lot of bands. And um, that didn't happen to them until the mid-90s, you know. I was singing in bars and stuff. Now, of course, for me to be able to pay at that young age to go on tour and to pay for gas and food and hotels and stuff, we would print shirts, print shirts, sell them in the parking lot. Now, this is before there was something called Shakedown. Shakedown is a term coming from a Grateful Dead show, Grateful Dead tours. Before the tours, people would gather in the parking lots in a big bazaar-like fashion with pop-ups, and they would sell shirts, food, drugs, whatever, you know, it was like a small bizarre marketplace. Well now, you find, you know, these things to a certain degree in other, you know, with other bigger bands like Watch for Panic, Fish, etc. I was, do, we were selling shirts in the days before this was, we were having to walk in between cars, catch people as they were arriving at the show to see if they wanted the shirts. Um, when you get to a certain point, bands could afford to be able to police you know, the uh, parking lots from people bootlegging, so to speak, and selling merch. Uh, they, they never did. They, Watch and Panic could never afford. They were a smaller outfit. And what they did, instead of uh, let loose the dogs of copyright on us, they hired us. My, my buddy, uh, Greg, at that time, who was printing shirts and designing shirts with me, went to the band and uh, asked how they would feel about doing posters because the poster game at that time was not big. It wasn't a, it wasn't a choice merch uh, item. It's always been t-shirts. T-shirts are always the biggest plum on the merch tree. You know, everybody needs a shirt. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people are doing posters. And at that time, it was relatively nobody. Who were the uh, big poster artists in 1990? There was Mark Arminsky. Kozik. Kozik. You know, there wasn't Chantry. a lot of guys. Yeah, there, yeah you know, not a whole lot. The guys who were uh, who started the game, like Mouse and Kelly and those guys, they, you know, the, 
they'd already done their time. You know, they weren't really out there putting out a large amount of stuff that they were doing in the 60s and the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So it's just, and that was, it was a kind of odd thing for, for, a, for a band to do, it was posters. And my friend Greg and I, who I just mentioned, have always loved posters. I Concert posters have always been a huge thing. I've always, as an artist, that was pretty much my number one, you know, the thing that caught my eye the most, where I, I have a love of music, I have a love of art, the crossroads of is those concert posters. And when, uh, as a young man, my father bought The Art of Rock, the big book, which is oh, yeah. right over there, and I think it's pretty much worn out from the amount I've read it cover to cover, over and over, you know. It's kind of funny. I was actually laughing about it in hindsight. At at that young point, I never would have thought I would ever be in the... They were just something beautiful to look at. I never thought I would ever be in the industry. But, um, yeah, going back, they were into it. They, any band looking to make a little money, which they were at that time, were open to new merch ideas. And it wasn't expensive. We, we, were, we converted a t-shirt press into a paper press and kind of uh, taught ourselves how to do it. There wasn't really the internet and to teach us no YouTube videos to learn from and there wasn't a lot of uh, yeah, there wasn't a lot of printers out there we could learn from. So Greg took it upon himself to really teach about the inks and the papers and whatnot and we converted a t-shirt press to be able to print paper and with a few failed attempts at the beginning, we uh, we did it. We know they were, and I think retail for posters at that time were were ten dollars, twenty dollars. I can't remember, <laughs> and they were not selling out at any. You know, they were a lot. Lots were always left over. What sort of runs were you doing at that point? It, it varied. Like um, <clears throat> I think the first one we did was for Lakewood. I think it was two hundred or two hundred fifty. Okay, and then we did a. Uh, I think by the end of the year, I can't remember, I think we did close to a 1,000 for the first New Year's at the Fox a few months later after that. So, But once again, it was all kind of testing. You know, yeah. We were all testing the waters, even the band. We didn't know how many to run. The band didn't, the merch people didn't know how much to run. So it was all just kind of new, new waters to sail across <laughs> for us. So anyway. Yeah. <laughs> does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah it does. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um, yeah, now you're, you're, well, I'm not going to uh, talk about your, uh, your, uh, you're working on a new poster for them, but, but you've continued to, to work on stuff for them for, well, now I guess it's over, well, yeah, over 20 years. Over 20 last years, year, yeah, yeah, I actually had a little end of the year <clears throat> celebration and uh, gave them big thanks for allowing me to, uh, yeah, use my art to represent them. That's a big privilege. I mean, to be an artist is one thing, but to have a band that you love choose your art to represent them is, uh, yeah. Well, not only that, but to to come back to you over and over again yeah. because they, they know that they, they trust in what you do. I mean, that says a lot. And it also... It, so, so that's interesting to me because I, I don't think a lot of people have that. Um, a lot of the people that I talk to through this are they're they are musicians, and so the the closest that we're going to get 
to that band that means a lot to us is we're gonna get to like open a show or maybe we'll get to open a couple shows or something like that uh, my buddy Conan gets to play in a band with somebody that he really respects a lot and, yeah. and that's that that's really cool but for you to have this relationship with them like what what does it mean to you to have this relationship uh, for so long like it's like you were you started out as a fan and now like you you've been you've had this business par- partnership of sorts with them for over 20 years i actually look at it as a blessing i don't think a lot of artists actually not really well i can't really say get the chance to work with a band of that size because when i first started working with them they weren't they still weren't really considered huge i mean 98 they were playing some sizable areas but outside of the people that loved Watch for Panic, no one really knew about Watch for Panic, you know? <laughs> so, but for me, it was huge. I mean, a lot of artists uh, start in the uh, poster game by working with small bands, mm-hmm. you know, garage bands, bands that never... But for me, I was able to start the game with my heroes at that time, you know? So, I mean, I, I could, you couldn't really ask for anything more. Now, yeah. the thing is... We were. It wasn't really a money-making venture mm-hmm. because it was a new thing. I mean, Greg and I already had our established T-shirt companies, our printing companies. We were looking to do this as a way for us to uh, kind of pay for gas, pay still still pay for gas, pay for hotel rooms, and uh, to get uh, free tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that was that was more of the uh, that was the biggest part. Was uh, yeah, we could go to shows whenever we wanted to wherever we wanted to <laughs> if we had the time to go because uh yeah yeah uh, I, don't, I don't know how many artists you know get to work with the bands they love the most it, it's all when you when you the first job you do for a band that you never work for but have you know so much uh love for is a that's a big thing yeah you know there's a lot of artists that don't know anything about Watchwood Panic that have done a lot of artwork for them. Beautiful artwork at that. But I think that's the extra cherry on top is when you do some work for somebody that you just, that inspires you. I mean, music inspires art. That art inspires the music. And it's very, it's a cycle, you know. I mean, yes, music is art, but well, it's two different kinds of things, right. you know. <laughs> Poster art and music art is, but they both tend to feed each other. I can't work in silence, you know? I have to listen to music, and whatever I listen to inspires the work that I'm working on, so we kind of go hand in hand. So um, I guess to start rounding out, if someone if someone came to you and said that uh, they were looking to get into widespread what what would you tell them what like what direction would you send them in i know that for certain people like they're gonna suggest certain albums or something like that but but like we discussed they're they're not necessarily known for their albums they're known for their their shows like what would what would you suggest they do well that's actually an interesting call because you have three different eras (laughs) from the beginning in 86 to 2002 was with uh, an original member that passed away, uh, the lead guitarist, Michael Hauser. He had a very unique and distinct sound that really nobody else in the world of guitar playing sounds like. 
You actually have to kind of listen to it. it, it I, I describe his sounds when he starts soloing it as, as a, literally a turning knife. A turning knife. I, I don't know why uh, a turning knife would seem enjoyable <laughs> to somebody, but um, it's something about he, he helped define what I call the Athens sound from the late 80s to, I think, about the beginning or mid-2000s. There was something distinctly beautiful about the music coming out of Athens, Georgia. And it was very unique. There wasn't... Uh, Japan Cakes was a band that st stood out. Um, Widespread Panic. I mean, some people think about R.E.M., but it's really... It was after R.E.M. and the B-52s had blossomed and left, where... The what I call the Athens sound kind of emerged. Mm -hmm. I, it's it's kind of hard to explain. You you got to kind of listen to it. Now, after Michael Hauser passed, they uh, hired another guitarist named George McConnell. He was from a band called Beanland. Um, he was a very nice guy. He he his sound was very different from the original guitarist Michael Hauser. And that rubbed people the wrong way. I mm. don't know if a lot of fans were expecting Michael Hauser 2.0 mm. to come out of uh, the days of George McConnell, but that was not the case. And people did not like it. They lost some fans due to it. They might have even gained some fans because of it. I don't know. Strangely enough, Michael Hauser's uh, passing coincided with my son being born and growing up. And so I actually left the scene for a while. I didn't think that where I was uh, with screen printing would financially take my family where it needed to be. So I actually left screen printing, posters, the music scene, and went, regrettably, a corporate route, trying to, uh, trying to uh, be a corporate graphic artists mm -hmm. and um, for a few years I tried that and was told the same thing that I needed to go back to what I was doing that my art fitted the strange and unusual and that uh, I did not have the mindset for climbing a corporate ladder so I actually had to go back into it which pretty much uh, lined up with George McConnell leaving the band he was uh, he left the band oh I should know this, but strangely enough, I forgot. I think it was 2005, 2006, where um, George McConnell left and they brought uh, Jimmy Herring. Jimmy Herring was pretty much a virtuoso. Okay. Known, uh, I think at that time, he had been playing with the Allman Brothers. He was playing with uh, Phil Lesh and Friends, as well as uh, a bunch of other side projects that he and others had started. This... Uh, was the beginning of widespread panic 3.0 you, you can call it that which leads up to now jimmy herring is still with so i guess he started i guess it's been what 12 years since he's been and um yeah it's they, they found uh with every with every with every version of widespread panic be it first second third there's they have a distinct different sound because the lead guitarist always kind of leads the band 
so to speak. They're 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 definitely a guitar driven band, even though they have other very talented uh, musicians. They're they're definitely a guitar driven band. So going back to the original question, a new fan coming into widespread panic, what would I do? I would tell them to listen to all three versions, starting with the beginning. You, you can't you can't listen to Led Zeppelin without listening to the Zeppelin one. So yeah, I mean to 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 take the long way around to answer your question, start at the beginning and go towards the end. But I would uh, I would definitely start them with live music before I would start them with the albums. I think I would blend in the albums as I was introducing them to the early live music, the mid day live music and the uh, live music of the modern times so there you go um, well yeah is there anything else that you uh, want to say about widespread or? Uh, excuse me not at all um, no no in fact I don't think I've talked this much about them in a while <laughs> um, let's see where uh, you as we discussed you're an artist uh, where can people find your stuff just do a google search for home team graphics and i'll pop up well thank you very much for talking to me thank you chris always a pleasure <laughs> to talk to you my man i'll let you get back to your posters all right i thank you <laughs> all right <laughs> the operative is produced in conjunction with radio nope for a full listing go to radionope.com <laughs>